I'm surprised you didn't propose doing an emergency podcast on it, Galen. Well, I was going to wait until everyone was ready, but I wanted to let you guys know that we've actually scrapped the run of our show for today, and we're going to just be talking about the <laughs> Megan and Harry interview. Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Over the weekend, the Senate passed its version of the nearly $2 trillion American Rescue Plan. It's slightly different from the House version, based on concerns from some moderate senators. Today, we're going to talk about the political considerations of those moderates. Are they motivated by ideology, institutions, electability, all of the above, something else altogether? We're also going to discuss the political future of New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo. Over the weekend, the state's Senate Majority Leader called on Cuomo to resign after multiple sexual harassment accusations. Cuomo said he will not resign. So what happens next here? And what do New Yorkers themselves want? We're also going to take a look at what's going on with governor's decisions to lift COVID restrictions around the country after Texas and Mississippi lifted all restrictions last week. Of course, Democratic governors are also in many ways loosening some of their COVID restrictions. So here with me to discuss it all is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. And also here with us is Alexandra Samuels, politics reporter here at 538. Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. This is your first time with us. It's great to have you. Yes, thank you. Howdy, Galen. Howdy. And I should mention with an intro like that, that you are on the ground in Austin, Texas. So I look forward to all of your reporting, in particular, some of your insights into Texas today. And I should mention that you also used to report for the Texas Tribune. So you are an expert on all things Texas. I like to think so. Later on in the show, science reporter and host of our COVID-19 podcast, Anna Rothschild, is also going to join us. But let's begin with the situation in New York. Five women have accused Governor Cuomo of sexual harassment or inappropriate behavior in recent weeks. This comes after the state's attorney general and media reports have criticized his administration for how it handled and misreported nursing home deaths early in the pandemic. Some state Democrats have called for Cuomo to resign, while national Democrats have largely deferred to an independent investigation into the governor's behavior. The most significant call to resign came on Sunday from New York Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins. Cuomo said also on Sunday that there is, quote, no way he resigns. So this seems like a pretty severe governing challenge if the leaders of your party in the legislature are asking you to step down. Nathaniel Rakich, how should we expect this to play out? It's definitely very up in the air. I think there's a huge amount that rides on how the story develops. Are there 10 other women out there who are going to accuse Cuomo? The FBI is already looking into how he handled the reporting of nursing home deaths in the state. And if there are more developments in that case, it could certainly lead to a resignation. But on the other hand, if this is the end of it and we think drag out from here and he's able to kick the can down the road, maybe another story comes up in the news cycle, you could easily see him riding out the wave, not resigning, and maybe even winning re-election in 2022, although that's a whole other can of worms. I agree. I think at this point it is a wait and see game. I think it's easy for Cuomo right now to put on this brave face, say, I'm not resigning, I'm not going anywhere. But I think a big reason for that is because not a lot of Democratic New York politicos have called for his resignation outright. That is until Sunday. And I think the most recent person to do so was Comptroller Scott Stringer. One thing I saw that was interesting was New York reporter Zach Fink tweeted yesterday that 
Cuomo was making the rounds in a sense of telling other New York politicians to not issue statements about him just yet. And I think that Cuomo knows that if he loses support among New York Democrats and politicians in the state, that that could be the final nail in the coffin. I mean, Cuomo's a pretty stubborn guy. He's been stubborn kind of in various ways throughout the COVID response, where someone will critique an aspect of his policy, and then he'll kind of publicly complain about the critique and then actually change things like two days later after all. I mean, the problem is if you resign, then you'll forever be remembered for resigning because it's not like people will be like, oh, well, actually, this was okay, and he did the right thing, and he bowed out. So he'll probably take it as like a challenge to survive and maybe even run for re-election. If he can't get anything done, if legislative leaders in New York State are going to say, okay, well, sorry, your agenda is squashed, that'd be one thing. But like, it's a Democratic supermajority. They have lots of stuff they have to do. All these state legislators are a bit busy because of all the COVID fixing that has to be done. So I don't know. I think, again, is there impeachment in New York? Yeah, there is impeachment there in New is, York. There is, yeah. And 10 legislators so far have called for his impeachment, which is not as many as have called for him to resign, but a significant number. Rekic, you and I have done research on scandals and catalog lots of scandals, and they do have an effect. And clearly you see that Cuomo's numbers are down. But they also tend to have a shelf life where we found that if you win re-election after a scandal, then kind of the media stops talking about it anymore, and it doesn't hurt you very much going forward. So how popular is Cuomo is a good question, but still, like, he's a little bit underwater now in most of these numbers, but that may improve again after the course of however many months when people are kind of thinking about other stuff. Yeah, to Nate's point, the scandals database that we run here has 52 politicians who have faced scandal since the beginning of the Trump era in 2017, and only 12 of them have resigned for reasons that Nate laid out, like the legacy torpedoing that would be a resignation. My personal guess would be that he just declines to run for re-election in 2022. I think that's a way of saving face. You don't go down in history as the governor who resigned because of sexual harassment, but it also avoids the potential embarrassment of losing in 2022, which I think is possible. So let's talk about where the numbers are at this moment, because there's many different things that pollsters have been asking New Yorkers about Cuomo. And while there has been a lot of polling, it's not recent enough to take into account all of the most recent accusations. But the main things being polled are approval overall, whether or not New Yorkers want the governor to resign, and then also whether or not the governor should run for re-election in 2022. And they all get a significantly different result. Alex, what are we seeing in terms of what New Yorkers are telling pollsters they want? Without going over the top lines for every individual poll, I'd say if I had to take away a conclusion, one, New Yorkers don't think he should resign right now, but they also don't want him to run in 2022. And like you said, Galen, I think a lot of these polls are just coming out, and I'm not sure how these numbers will change in a month or two once the independent investigation or report comes out. But I think it's fair to say that the scandal on top of scandal that he's facing right now, whether it be the sexual harassment allegations or the nursing home cover-up, that is definitely tanking his overall approvals right now. 
I actually recently wrote an article that recapped governor's approval ratings in general, and Cuomo had among the lowest of the approval ratings that we've seen. It was about 50-50, which of course in a state as blue as New York is not a very good performance for a Democrat. But the trend line is also important. As recently as a few months ago, he was very popular. He was riding this wave of goodwill over his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, which has generally up to this point been seen to be good. But actually the nursing home scandal, I think, really did start to hurt him, arguably more than the sexual harassment scandal because it really tarnished that image of him as a COVID-19 savior. And you started to see his approval rating come down from being very good to being mediocre. And then since the sexual harassment scandal, we only have, I think, two good polls, Quinnipiac and Emerson. Although, as you mentioned, Galen, they don't even take into account the most recent allegations and calls for him to resign. And those have had some of his worst numbers yet. Quinnipiac had him at a 45% approval rating and a 46% disapproval rating. And Emerson was even worse, 38% approval, 49% disapproval. Oh, his numbers on COVID are better than his numbers overall. They are, yes. And on qualities like being a strong leader, still something like 61% of people still think he's a strong leader. So I do think that's a point in favor of maybe he can ride this out. Yeah, I mean, as someone who lives in New York, I feel like there are national media types and also some like New York media types who are like, oh, Cuomo is just like a media darling, and that's why he was so popular. I think that's kind of half true, but half false. There are things about living in New York. So for example, New York is one of the top states in the country for COVID testing. It's pretty easy to get a COVID test here. Our vaccine rollout started out slow. It's been reasonably smooth since we have regulations that are generally fairly sensible, where it's not opening everything up, it's not keeping everything closed. And like at a time when like New York was really suffering, he gave those press conferences that were data-driven-ish and reassuring-ish to people. So, like, I would have thought he would have a better chance of surviving this nursing home scandal than when you add the sexual harassment to it. Alex, you mentioned that polls show that New Yorkers don't want Cuomo to resign at this point in time, but also don't want him to run for re-election. And looking at the Quinnipiac poll that you mentioned, Nathaniel, it looks like it's a 15-point gap in terms of how many people say he shouldn't resign. 40% of New Yorkers say he should resign, 55% say he shouldn't. We are now increasingly seeing that Democratic lawmakers in the state are calling for the governor to resign. Is it fair to say that lawmakers and voters see these kinds of things differently? Are voters just kind of waiting and taking cues from lawmakers? Why are lawmakers calling for Cuomo to resign when the majority of New Yorkers don't want him to resign? I think it maybe has to do with these people at the state level having to work with Cuomo on a day-to-day basis. And maybe they think that the scandals are overwhelming and it's overshadowing his ability to work with them on a day-to-day basis, whereas the voters don't have to deal with that. One thing that I noticed is, I don't know, from a voter's point of view, is it just easier to say, hey, we're kind of at the tail end of this pandemic. Is it easier to just ride it out with the person who has been there for us from the beginning and then say, hey, we don't want you to run in 2022? One way or another, you're also going to have a competitive Democratic primary in 2022 with Cuomo or without, because he's been in office for three terms, because New York's always been a funny state for local politics, because of the kind of imbalance between downstate and upstate, and like people are kind of not as attentive to local politics they might be, given that New York is all attached to politics overall. There is room here for people to kind of get ahead of the story and be on what they think is the right side of the issue. You also have mayoral primary in New York that's very competitive coming up soon. So people like Scott Stringer 
is probably trying to position himself relative to that mayoral race. But what you don't see, actually, is national Democrats weighing in and calling for Cuomo to resign. You've seen the White House and even New York state senators defer to this independent investigation. We didn't see that kind of wait-and-see attitude with Senator Al Franken when he resigned early on in the Me Too movement. I'm curious, is this just a different situation and we should look at it differently? Or have Democrats changed how they react to sexual harassment scandals since the beginning of Me Too? Well, I think people forget the context on Franken, which is that this was happening right when you had this Alabama special Senate election where Roy Moore, who, of course, was doing things that are way worse than Franken or Cuomo or almost anybody to run for public office. But you had a time when Democrats were trying to stay on the right side of the moral high ground. I think that might have affected things. Also, Franken was due to come up for re-election. I guess I think it was four years from then, so he might have been more vulnerable. But like fundamentally, a governor has jurisdiction over his state or her state. A Sander makes policy for all states, so it's more appropriate in some sense for other national Democrats to weigh in if it affects a member of the United States Congress. So do you actually think that that calculation of like, oh, well, I'm a national politician and this is a state-level issue is more the consideration? So, for example, we look at Gillibrand, who was one of the first senators to call on Franken to resign. In this situation, even though she is a New York State senator, she's deferring to the independent investigation. And you even see reporting after the fact that some senators said they felt that they came out too aggressively against Franken and regretted encouraging him to resign. So is the Democratic Party recalibrating here? I'm curious, Alexandra and Nathaniel, what you guys think. I think some senators at the time, post-Franken told the Washington Post, and forgive me if I'm simplifying this, is that they think they were forced to make this sort of snap decision about Franken and maybe did so at the expense of due process. And I think the idea was that Franken should have received his day in court, which maybe would have led to a more thoughtful outcome and maybe less people calling for his resignation just immediately after the scandal broke. So I think that's maybe one of the reasons why we're seeing some pause uh, with Cuomo now, with Gillibrand and Schumer, who so far have called for this independent investigation to work its way out before they actually make a decision on whether he should resign or not. The other timing that's relevant with the Franken accusations is that they came right on the heels of Me Too as a national movement. And there were a lot of very strange arguments to my ear being advanced around Al Franken, right? It was like people who were liberal Democrats who were saying, of course, we'd have zero tolerance, but maybe we should have a little bit of tolerance for Franken. And they kind of couch it in these, I think, sometimes disingenuous arguments like, oh, we need like an investigation into the facts. Well, if there are facts that dispute, then okay, maybe we need to investigate that. But I don't think there was that much that was actually in dispute in that case. So I think Democrats came out of that thinking that whether they want to admit it or not, there is kind of a sliding scale. And it's not zero tolerance and what the standards are is not clear, but like Gillibrand took a lot of crap for her stance. It was ironic that like a woman winds up getting blamed basically for a man's misdeeds, whatever you think Frank should have resigned or not. But like, I think there were lessons learned. So I do think it's different timing, but also I think Democrats did take away some lessons from that that are awkward and maybe not spelled out, but might affect things. I mean, Cuomo is also like, he is not seen as an ally of progressives either. Um, and he is seen as an ally of moderate. So it's not totally shocking who's coming out in support and who isn't. A piece here that we mentioned early on, but I think plays into how Democrats have potentially evolved on this. And maybe some of you disagree, Democrats haven't evolved and you can make the argument against that. But So 
in 2019, and we talked about this on the podcast at the time, the three top Democratic officials in Virginia all faced scandals. So the governor, Ralph Northam, was in a photograph where it was clear that he was either wearing blackface or dressed as a KKK member. Then the lieutenant governor was accused of sexual assault by two women. And then the attorney general also came forward and, and said that he had worn blackface himself. And so you know, it went from people calling on the governor and then also the lieutenant governor to resign to all of a sudden the situation where all three top Democrats in the state have been accused of wrongdoing and they all agree not to resign and they stay in place. Nine months after all of this news broke, in many ways their approval ratings had rebounded. They were above water and no one was talking about it anymore. So I'm also curious if Democrats have looked at that lesson, especially the people in power like Cuomo, and said, oh, you know what, like, the way to resolve this is to just let time pass and refuse to resign. Yeah, I think the passage of time and also how many people you have on your side is going to be pretty indicative on whether you decide to run again for re-election. In the cases that you mentioned in Virginia, their approval ratings did rebound, but none of them at the time mustered enough majority support from voters who were asked whether or not they should seek office again. So I think it might be likely that we see a similar situation with Cuomo where it's possible that his approval ratings rebound from what we're seeing now, but I think it will be a harder uphill battle for him to get to the point where voters where they say, yes, we want him to run again in 2022. Right. I think the missing context there, Galen, is that the lieutenant governor is running for governor and he's probably going to get squashed. The attorney general is facing a competitive primary to hold on to his seat and the governor can't run again because of term limits. So I think you might have had a different scenario. You know, As my database and research into scandals shows, there are ways for politicians to face consequences other than resigning. Many of them retire I mean, or to not lose re-election. Many of them do go on to lose re-election. And the number who, who actually do successfully continue their political career is actually a minority. So these things, despite like people looking at Trump's experience or looking at what happened in Virginia— these things do matter. Yes. How should we think of that in the terms of democracy and politics? Like, is it a depressing thought to think, like, voters care for a time, but then they lose interest? I mean, I tend not to want to judge voters too much <laughs> either way. If you think, well, this guy is a creep, but he's a good legislator or a good governor, or sure, this woman's corrupt, but... She does a lot of good things for our state. You know, are voters being irrational for not waiting scandals enough? I mean, it seems like it depends a lot on what the nature of the scandal would be. When you have someone that like Roy Moore, right? I mean, that was probably like a, I mean, how much did he run below the baseline in Alabama? Probably 20 or 30 points or something like that. So in really extreme cases, voters can extract a lot of punishment enough to elect a Democrat in Alabama. In squishier cases, then they might not. And I don't know if that's rational or not. All right. Well, of course, this is an evolving story, and we will continue to check in on what's happening here in New York and how things progress. But I do want to talk about the passage of the American Rescue Plan. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. 
effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. The nearly $2 trillion American Rescue Plan passed the Senate on Saturday, but there were some final sticking points that were largely hashed out by moderate Democrats and Joe Manchin in particular. In the end, the increase in unemployment benefits will remain at $300 instead of going up to $400 and will extend through Labor Day, but not through the end of September. Also, the $1,400 stimulus checks will be phased out for individuals making over $80,000 as opposed to $100,000. And a proposal to include a minimum wage hike in the bill also failed with seven Democrats and one independent who caucuses with the Democrats opposing it. The bill was still passed along strict party lines. It's now headed back to the House for approval of the new provisions, and then it will go to President Biden's desk. You know, I want to key in on how the moderate Democrats in the Senate are thinking about these negotiation processes. And in particular, let's start off with why was Manchin, it was really him down at the end, extracting these concessions for a bill that wasn't going to get any Republican support anyway? I mean, this may be too cynical, but I think a lot of it was a power play. He essentially demonstrated the leverage that individual Democrats can wield by threatening to break from party leaders in a 50-50 chamber. With the current makeup of the Senate, Democrats need his votes. And so that leaves Democrats left playing this complicated game. They can't tilt too far center without losing progressive support, but then they can't go too far left in fear of losing members like Manchin or Cinema. First of all, in the end, Joe Manchin did vote for a $1.9 trillion stimulus package. I mean, that's a lot of money, only some of which is actually directly tied to COVID relief. It includes a lot of money for like states and localities and so forth. And like, it's a very progressive bill. I mean, on the minimum wage stuff, minimum wage polls quite well. I think it's certainly possible that Joe Manchin genuinely thought that like $15 minimum wage is too high for West Virginia. And there were a lot of other Democrats like Cinema who also were not willing to increase the minimum wage. It would probably not have survived scrutiny of the parliamentarian anyway, necessarily. One thing I don't totally understand is like, why didn't Democrats try to compromise at like a 1150 or 1250 or something minimum wage? It seems like if you're Elizabeth Warren or someone who wants a higher minimum wage, it is fairly linear. Getting halfway there is a lot better, you would think, for progressive priorities than getting none of the way there. Well, I think that that is going to happen. It's just going to be what happens next. The parliamentarian in the Senate ruled that the minimum wage can't be raised through reconciliation anyway. So it kind of had to be excluded from this. I am sure that, like you mentioned, they will come back and try to negotiate on this and maybe include Republicans, but obviously at least include moderate Democrats. I think Alex makes a great point that it is just to kind of show what he can do. I also think, yeah, it comes down to ideology. I think Joe Manchin truly thinks of himself as kind of this old-fashioned, down-the-middle, bipartisan, deal-making senator. And this was consistent with his vision of himself and certainly his personal ideologies. You know, I think he probably 
also has misgivings about what he might see as, quote, reckless spending and wanted to do his part to reel that in. Obviously, there are also the electoral considerations. He comes from an extremely red state, and that is interesting. He maybe needs something to bring back to West Virginia and say, look, I stood up to those evil national Democrats. I'm actually not convinced that he's even going to run for re-election personally. I think that's an interesting question. He's going to be 77, I believe, uh, when his seat is up next. And he's also kind of expressed dissatisfaction with being in the Senate in the past. But I think actually specifically with the minimum wage, and we can talk about that later, I think it's clear that for some people like cinema and things like that, that it is just a personal ideological thing rather than going with politics because the minimum wage increase, as Nate said, is very popular. Broadening out from Manchin here, I am curious about the interplay between ideology and electoral concerns because we always talk about Manchin and cinema, but of course, Warnock and Ossoff are also Democrats from states that are just as competitive when it comes to statewide elections. And so how much of it is electoral concerns and how much of it is just ideology? And can we tell that from looking at voting records or so on? First of all, I would disagree. I think Georgia is not comparable to West Virginia. It's much more purple. Sorry, I should more compare it to Arizona. Georgia and Arizona? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I think all the criticism that Manchin gets for progressives would be much better directed at cinema because she is someone who has a more conservative voting record than you probably need to in what is now a very purple state that has two Democratic senators and which Joe Biden narrowly won. Anytime Manchin votes for any Democratic priority, then that's a real bonus because you'll turn you're going to have a conservative, Trumpian Republican in that state probably. But cinema, she actually kind of underperforms where you might expect a purple state senator to be in terms of voting for progressive priorities. I mean, I've had this critique for years. I think both Republican and Democratic activists of the quote-unquote far right or far left aren't adjusting enough for the context of the state that they're talking about. Yeah, to the cinema point, her state, Arizona, voted on a ballot measure to raise the minimum wage to $12 an hour, not $15 an hour. But that ballot measure passed 58% to 42% in 2016 when the state was less purple than it is today. So the minimum wage is something that clearly has a lot of support in Arizona. It would be the, the smart political play, I think, for someone like Cinema to come out in favor of it. You know, maybe the 15 versus 12 is the issue, but you see Cinema, but also some of these other moderate senators, even in places not that purple, like the two senators from Delaware voted against the minimum wage increase. And so I think you have to say that it comes from a place of personal ideology or perhaps a misreading of the political climate. Maybe they're playing more toward donors. Their internal circles are probably more of these kind of elite fiscal conservatives. And so maybe they're gearing their votes toward that person rather than looking at the polls. I'm not exactly sure, but it's definitely not consistent with the popular opinion. As the University of Chicago economics major in this group, oh God, I do feel compelled to point out <laughs> that the science on the minimum wage is not settled exactly. For a long time, the conventional wisdom was that oh, actually, economists oppose minimum wage increases because they would cost jobs. And the empirical evidence has questioned that to a large degree and has been much more mixed. But if you're talking about going to $15, what is it right now? It's $7.25? $7.25. That's quite radical as an experiment. It's probably fine in Seattle or New York City or San Francisco where default wages are that high, but I don't know if it's true in Wil Wilmington, Delaware or Wheeling, West Virginia or whatever else. Right, and the CBO 
to whatever extent they can try to forecast these things, economics doesn't always get it exactly right, but they forecasted that this would bring more than a million people out of poverty, but also lose about a million jobs. Yeah, and that's a difficult trade-off to make. So when it came to this vote on the minimum wage, which is now we're not talking about just cinema and mansion, we're talking about seven Democrats plus Angus King, the independent caucuses with the Democrats. Was this a vote to respect the institutions of the Senate because Bernie Sanders was trying to change the bill and to include a minimum wage even after the Senate parliamentarian had said that it couldn't be included in a bill that would go through reconciliation? So are they just saying like, hey, the Senate parliamentarian already ruled, we can't overrule the Senate parliamentarian? Or were they actually saying, I don't think the minimum wage should be raised to $15 an hour? Because of these eight people, many of them had never said before that they opposed raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Yeah. And like you said, the vote was an exact extrapolation on where senators stand on raising the minimum wage. I think that if the parliamentarian had found that it was in order to increase the minimum wage through reconciliation, there might have been a negotiation on what the exact amount was. I think Nate mentioned earlier that Manchin has already said he supports an $11 minimum wage. I know Holly on the Republican side has also said he's in favor of raising the wage, of course, with some different types of measures there. But I think what we're likely to see, I think this discussion might be tabled for now, but in the future, I think it's likely that Republicans and Democrats might be able to find some sort of agreement since raising the wage is very popular nationally. I think it could have been seen as a parliamentary vote. You know, I'm here to casting my vote to respect Senate institutions, but I don't think it ended up that they actually did see it that way. You know, I think that Democrats know that in order for this to pass, it needed to pass 60-40. So it was never going to pass anyway because Republicans weren't going to vote for it. So I do think that senators treated it as a symbolic vote on the minimum wage itself. You see that in some of the statements that they released. None of them were talking about, oh, I did this because we have to respect the parliamentarians' rulings. You see statements like Tom Carpers of Delaware, who said, policymakers have a responsibility to be especially mindful of the fragile state of small businesses all across this country. Or Jean Shaheen of New Hampshire, who said that she supports raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, but with, quote, safeguards in place for small businesses. So I think that they really did use it as a chance to signal their moderation and pro-business bona fides, even though, again, the puzzle being that a strong majority of voters support raising the minimum wage and aren't on the pro-business side. So it does come down to, are they trying to appeal to business constituencies, to DC's idea of moderation? Alex, how do you suspect that these kinds of divisions within the Democratic Party, particularly in the Senate, will play out? Is it like the 42 Democrats who are voting to raise the minimum wage to $15 or the eight? Like, who has more power here and how does that divide get reconciled. I do think right now what we're seeing is that the moderates in the Senate do have outsized power because Democrats need all of their votes to pass a lot of legislation. And so they know that they need to tailor whatever bills that they're moving forward so that it will have the support of the entire Democratic caucus. As far as what we're looking at, it, what defines a moderate senator, I think that varies based on who you ask. Some will say these eight who voted against raising the minimum wage owe 
yes, they're moderate. Some will say, no, keep an eye more on like the mansion cinema types who are way more likely, I think, to buck their party than others in that group. So I think one big thing that I'm looking at now is, you know, what's going to happen with the filibuster and what senators are going to be in favor of just completely getting rid of the filibuster or changing it a little bit, like Manchin signaled some openness to doing so this past weekend. So again, I do think the moderates have a lot of outsized control in the chamber. So Manchin said he is open to making the filibuster more painful, as in in order to use the filibuster, you actually have to speak the entire time that you are filibustering something. Doesn't that kind of mean, like, ultimately he's okay with functionally getting rid of it? Because then the alternative would be politicians literally just speaking in perpetuity in order to filibuster. So how did you read that? I read it uh, similar to how you did, like getting rid of the filibuster without outright saying, I want to get rid of the filibuster. Because if I'm understanding it correctly, it's those in the minority can talk something to death. And then when everyone is done talking, there would still be a vote on the bill. And I think the vote would still just need a simple majority. So maybe that was just Manchin's way of getting around it without, again, outright saying that, yes, I want to get rid of the filibuster. I mean, I think if you think of this as like, leverage, then having ambiguity can create more leverage sometimes. But the House passed H.R. 1 was this big set of electoral reforms. It would supposedly end partisan gerrymandering. It does a lot of stuff on campaign finance. It's a very sweeping and ambitious bill. I think a lot of Democrats would say that, well, to protect our democracy, that's an existential priority, and that's the kind of thing that would be worth nuking the filibuster over. I mean, remember, if 50 Democratic senators want to pass a bill, then they can get rid of the filibuster and, and pass that bill. So it's kind of show match and hedging a little bit. And I do think it was probably significant. All right. Well, as I have said many times on this podcast, we will continue tracking what people are saying about the filibuster and where things go from here. But let's move on and talk about some of the state-level COVID restrictions. But before we do that, we're going to say goodbye to our colleague, Nathaniel Rakich. So thanks for joining us today, Nathaniel. Sure thing, Galen. Good to talk to you. Let's move on and talk about some of the governors that are doing away with COVID restrictions in their state altogether, or at least loosening them. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Last week, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas and Tate Reeves of Mississippi announced that they were lifting all COVID restrictions in their states. Democrats criticized that decision, and Biden called it, quote, Neanderthal thinking. Democratic governors, however, have also been lifting many restrictions. And so we're going to talk about the politics and the science that go into these moves. And joining us to discuss it is Anna Rothschild, science reporter and host of our COVID-19 podcast, which is called Podcast 19. Anna, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Galen. And I should also mention that to any folks who are listening to this podcast who have not yet listened to Podcast 19, first of all, what are you thinking? Second of all, you should go listen to it. Anyway, Alex, I'm going to have you kick us off here because you're based in Austin, as I mentioned. 
and you're very familiar with Texas politics. So what is going into this decision by Governor Abbott to lift all COVID restrictions, including mask mandates, and saying Texas is 100% COVID restriction-free? So I think there definitely was some politics that went into it, particularly because Abbott was getting flack from those on his right flank and then also Democrats. So he was in kind of a lose-lose situation. I think Republicans were chastising him for saying that he was too slow in reopening the state. And they pointed to examples in Florida, Governor DeSantis, who basically had no uh, restrictions. And so they were like, why is Republican state X doing this? But then you're over here doing Y. So I think that was part of it. When he announced that he was lifting the mask mandate and opening everything 100%, he pointed to the state's hospitalization rates and overall case numbers going down when he made his announcement. Uh, The flip side to all of this, of course, is that Both Texas and Mississippi are among the lowest in the nation in their vaccination rates. And I think at the time of Abbott's announcement, between 6 to 7% of Texans had been fully vaccinated. Do you have a sense for why that's so poor in Texas? I think just the rollout process has been... Kind of difficult. Uh, The lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, he had previously written a letter to the board, I guess, that oversees the vaccine rollout in Texas. And he had offered suggestions for how it could be made easier. But I think right now there's just been difficulties in getting it out to the right people at the right time. And things were kind of paralyzed in the state for about a week because of the storms and power outages and lack of water. I don't know if that had something to do with it as well. Yeah, and the governor said that he had wanted to make this opening announcement about a week prior, but wasn't able to because of the storm. Again, the flip side to that is, you know, with the storm, people were not able to get vaccinated. People were living with other folks who they hadn't been uh, in contact with. They were in hotels, so they weren't able to be in the comforts of their own home. So there could be a spike in cases because of the storm. We just don't know right now because it's too early. I want to put this in the context of what the federal government is saying. So Anna, What are CDC guidelines currently with regards to restrictions? Sure. So after the announcement by these governors, Rochelle Walensky, who's the director of the CDC, said that the next three months are really pivotal and that now is not the time to be loosening restrictions. Basically, she talked about the fact that while we've seen cases going down due in large part to vaccination, we're starting to see that decrease plateau a little bit. And at the same time, we're seeing more cases caused by this new variant of the virus that's more infectious, more contagious. So despite what these governors are saying, she's urging people to still take precautions, still socially distance, wear masks, wash your hands. This is coming from the federal government. We've seen Republican governors take a different path. There's also Christy Nome in South Dakota who never enacted any of these restrictions to begin with. But also we're seeing the blue state governors maybe most notably Cuomo in New York and Gavin Newsom in California, loosening restrictions significantly as well. And so not necessarily following the CDC guidelines or the urging of the director of the CDC that now is not the time to, as you said, be loosening restrictions. Here in New York, I can say, for example, that live events are going to start again in April. Nate, what are you thinking in terms of I know that Biden criticized these red state governors, but it's not really just a red state thing. What are you thinking about the politics that's going into this? And Connecticut, by the way, maybe the most dramatic one, where they're basically lifting all limits on indoor and outdoor gatherings, I think like March 19th or something. So look, I think the CDC has slightly lost the plot in its communication strategy. 
because I think they're seen as shifting the goalposts. I think they're seen as like advocating for a position, in this case, toward more caution, as opposed to like necessarily making the policy recommendation that you would end up with. And so I think these governors see themselves as having to balance competing interests, the interests of what people in their state want to do, of business interests, against the health guidelines, as opposed to just kind of taking what they say at face value. I think it's probably because the CDC, like, isn't giving people very many specifics. They'll say, well, we have to wait for cases to come down further. But if you don't kind of give people a date or a target, then you kind of have to improvise. And when Fauci, I think, at one point mentioned, we have to have cases come down to 10,000 cases. I mean, that's pretty low, depending on various questions about exactly how much protection from mild infection vaccines provide. We we might not get there anytime soon. (laughs) And so if you're not presenting a target, then governors have to adjust and adapt on their own. There's some polling questions. It's very sensitive for the question wording, but there is some tolerance for increasing activity when it used to be people were actually pretty cautious, at least in polls. And fundamentally, when cases are going down, then it's hard for the CDC, I think, to win the argument. You know, they can make good arguments. They can make good argument that, number one, these variants are increasing. Number two, boy, just a matter of four to six weeks, you probably have vaccines on demand for almost anyone who wants one. I think they'd be better off just kind of saying, hey, look, just give us four weeks. Give us four weeks. That will help a lot. Make April 1st or April 15th opening day or something, right? But instead, there's a lot of ambiguity, and and I think it's tricky. I think the CDC has been extremely conservative across the board with its guidance, not just for businesses, but also even until today for what people can do in their private lives, even after they've been vaccinated. So today they've finally said that vaccinated people can hang out together. We hadn't had official guidance about that until today. And I think that when you're so cautious, it does, to Nate's point, make people feel like, well, what was the point of all of this? Like, what's the point of getting vaccinated and doing all of this, going to these extreme lengths, if we're not able to get back to some semblance of normal? Yeah, I thought what CDC Today did was pretty good. Because, like, obviously, one thing I critique is, like, people are afraid of complexity and nuance, and those guidelines contain a lot of nuance. And so I thought that was well done. I totally agree. I just think other countries have gotten to that place with their messaging around vaccination sooner. And when you tell people across the board to be cautious, it's it's hard to take anything seriously. Alex, what have the politics been like on the ground in Texas? Was Abbott facing voters and a general public that was rebelling against the restrictions? Or is this more of a signal towards, you know, there's lots of thinking that he could run for president in 2024. Is is this more broader political signaling or was he really facing pressure from people on the ground? I think it's both, particularly on his right side. There was a pretty notorious case in Texas uh, with Shelley Luther. She was a Dallas hair salon owner who refused to shut down her salon, even though Abbott had ruled earlier in the pandemic that hair salons had to be shut down. And she received a lot of national attention and actually unsuccessfully ran for a state Senate seat, basically being this anti-Abbott, no mask type of Republican. And she got a decent amount of support. Again, she ended up losing. But when you look at someone like her and then you look at someone like Texas GOP chair Alan West hosting a 
open Texas rally right in front of the governor's mansion. He was facing a lot of pressure from those in his parties to open up a lot sooner. And I think that's probably part of why we saw his announcement when we did. Again, like you said, underlying this all is the 2024 intention. Abbott hasn't ruled out a White House bid for himself. And when you look at someone like DeSantis or Nome, who are pretty well-liked in Republican circles for essentially not having any restrictions or little to no restrictions, that's probably something that Abbott was taking into account when he made this announcement as well. I do think it's worth making a distinction between mask mandates and opening businesses because wearing masks is not very costly. It's mildly annoying and you have to go and buy a new batch of masks at Walgreens every now and then, right? But it's a very small step that I think people have more symbolic problems with. Whereas like closing down whole sectors of society, that's kind of a bigger deal. It's more costly for quality of life, more costly for the economy as well. If you were really rational about it, then you'd say, okay, well, we need to open up. It's been a year now. But to be do it safely, we actually have to keep this mask mandate in place. And by the way, like one thing in Texas is they are not prioritizing customer service workers or frontline workers for vaccines. To me, that seems like a a no-brainer, right? You want people to come to restaurants? Okay, then allow people on staff at the restaurant to be vaccinated. It's like a moral issue as well as a practical issue, just quite strange. And so, um, so you can imagine some governor executing some kind of coherent set of plans where it's time to reopen. So here's how we do it safely. But instead, it is ideologically positioned with the mask stuff. So setting that distinction, I have a question, Anna, for you, if you have the answer or anybody else who may have thought about this, is I constantly check how different parts of the country are doing online in terms of their COVID levels, right? And I've seen the numbers go up and down over the past year in regions of the country facing outbreaks when other parts of the country are doing well. The COVID numbers started going down before significant parts of the population were even vaccinated. And you saw it across the board in states that had really strict restrictions and states that had no restrictions at all. Like you see now there's a more severe outbreak in New York City where we've had lots of restrictions than there is in lots of parts of Florida or South Dakota where they've had no restrictions for so long. And I'm sitting here wondering, like, what is going on? What is determining where there are outbreaks? And so a piece of me wonders, like, does this have to do in part with why people are just red state, blue state, whatever, giving up on restrictions because they don't really understand what is the main factor in where there are bad outbreaks or where there aren't? Because as a layperson, and of course, governors and CDC people shouldn't be lay people, but like, I can't figure it out. So what is going on? What determines how bad an outbreak is? Are these restrictions really making a difference? This is a really tough question to really piece apart. To your point, there is no real way to say that if a governor institutes really strong restrictions, there will definitely be a reduction in cases. As you said, California had really strict restrictions and then saw this big surge in the winter. But also, South Dakota saw a giant surge in the fall, and they've had no restrictions, basically. It's hard to make these sweeping generalizations. We know the behaviors that lead to spread, right? We know that being indoors, maskless, congregating in close contact with people, that leads to spread. But whether or not these restrictions from above make much of a difference is, I think, really hard to piece apart right now and has a lot to do with the demographics of a state, how many people are having to leave their house to go to work versus working at home. Frankly, what season it is. Are people able to be outside or are they going to be inside more? And then also just sort of an element of luck. Like, 
an indoor wedding may not become a super spreader event, even if we know that an event like that has the potential to be a super spreader event. So I think it's worth remembering that we've only been studying this virus for a little over a year as a society. So there's some stuff that scientists just don't know about how well these restrictions really work. But there's also an element to this that I think gets a little overlooked, which is that like a state like Florida, people have said that even though they haven't had restrictions since September, they've been doing pretty well. I mean, when DeSantis lifted those restrictions in September, I think that the Miami Herald reported that there'd been 14,000 deaths in the state, and now there are 31,000 deaths in the state. And we have no idea how many of those could have been prevented if there had been restrictions. So just something to keep in mind. I um, found a cool site this morning called covid19.gleamproject.org, where they actually trace people's movement and their contacts, how many other people they're around. And if you compare, okay, how many contacts do people in California have as compared to the U.S. as a whole, the California baseline tracks the U.S. baseline almost perfectly based on the amount of time you spend around other people. Now, if you look at it more carefully, it turns out that they have fewer contacts, but they spend more time with those contacts. I don't know if it's in people's bubbles or in their households, or if, frankly, if you're like going over to someone's house to hang out, you actually probably spend more time with them, I think. Obviously, if people have fewer contacts, they will spread less COVID. But how much do government policies really influence that is kind of hard to say. Now, if you look at South Dakota on that chart, you do see more contacts. There might be a thing where, like, if you send a message that, hey, it's a free-for-all, this COVID thing, it's a borderline hoax, you don't need to wear masks, that might change behavior. Whether a restaurant is open, especially outdoors or not, I mean, if people want to hang out, they're going to hang out in one of those homes, I think, and that might not make as much difference as much as the, the major stuff. In practice, if you pick off a low-hanging fruit, so work from home, avoid large gatherings and act prudently, then the smaller stuff probably makes some difference, but maybe not as much as you would think, especially if you kind of substitute in-person interaction in homes for out in public. I think it also depends just how much virus is actually in the population at the time, which is not something that I think we've mentioned yet. And that is probably a factor in how much the virus spreads after restrictions are lifted. You mentioned it a little bit at the top, Nate, but do we know what Americans want in terms of the level of restrictions? I think Pew did a poll asking people, do you want fewer restrictions or more restrictions? And it came out that the plurality is with the status quo is good, that people are happy with the status quo, but there are about equal numbers on the side of wanting more and fewer. And that poll actually a few more people wanting fewer, which was different than previous polls. Not every poll agrees with that, but it's actually a tough issue to poll for a couple of reasons. Number one, there was likely some bias in the 2020 election polls because people who stay at home are more likely to answer a pollster's phone call. So you might have like a bias toward people who are more likely to be in lockdowns or voluntarily staying at home. So that might affect things a little bit. You know, it could also be because we have some degree of social desirability bias. I mean, I think I've said this on this podcast before, but like there is a gap between what sort of behaviors people are trying to emulate on social media or if you read any type of media. And what I would say that my friends do in private and people are being pretty cautious or most people in my peer group are not pretending that it's 2019, but there's this notion if you go online that like, oh, actually, 
the virtuous thing to do is to, it might be virtuous because it means you're going to stop spreading COVID, right? But people are saying, well, I have barely left my apartment for a year except to see friends for 15 minutes outdoors in the park with masks on six feet apart. I don't think that actually is how (laughs) most people are behaving. But is there a gap in the data? Like, are people telling pollsters like, oh yeah, we really want restrictions, but then is there mobility data that shows that people are, regardless of restrictions, being more mobile? Mobility data shows that mobility is not down that much. But again, that can be a little bit misleading because people can like go on long drives or long walks and stuff like that. It's kind of one of the safer things to do under COVID. This contact that I described earlier shows that people nationwide are at about two thirds of their usual contacts. So you cut out a third of social interaction, roughly speaking. It's actually up a little bit. It was down at more around 50% in December and January. Now it's crept up to 65%. So that would suggest that people are coming out of their winter hibernation period a little bit, and that might pretend some increase in cases. All I'm saying is like, it's a case we have to look at revealed preference too. You can survey people and they may say one thing, but like, but people's behavior is a is a different thing. And and I think kind of as it warms up, this week in New York, it's supposed to get up to the 60s. I mean, I think it's going to be probably a little raucous in some parts of New York. Alex, what's your experience on the ground in Texas in terms of what preferences people are saying they have and how people are behaving? Yeah, so we actually had a University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll that came out March 1st, and this was on masks specifically. But the poll found that 88% of the state's voters wear masks when they're in close contacts with others outside their household. And this was regardless of party. That group included 98% of Democrats and 81% of Republicans. So when you look at Texas, where Abbott has completely lifted the mask mandate, I think it's likely that you're going to see people still going out in public and wearing masks. As far as opening up the state 100%, you know, you have some businesses who can still decide whether they want to enforce social distancing and whether they want to enforce mass orders. So I think even though Abbott made this announcement, it is going to be left on the individual decisions and the decisions of the businesses as far as how serious these things are put in place. Has Abbott suffered at all? You look at the average approval ratings for DeSantis and Nome, and you see that they're quite high, actually. It seems like people in the state have liked their attitudes on COVID. Abbott taking that middle path, but now reconsidering. How has he fared? So one thing about Abbott is for as much complaining as there has been from Democrats and people to his right about his COVID response, Republican voters have overwhelmingly stuck by him. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago and his approval rating among Republicans has really been the 70s and 80 percent. Um, and he's already said that he's running for uh, another term in 2022. So I think he does still have the support of a decent amount of his base still. I think that's a good point about the overall approval ratings. And like my prior is to think that these governors are reading the political incentives of their own states reasonably well. I think on the mask mandates, that might ask people who want to have like a national stage, or that might be a little bit of signaling. But the degree of like openness and closedness, Ron DeSantis probably understands what would be optimal for him politically in, in Florida, and Cuomo understands that in New York. And we also should point out that like a lot more people are getting vaccinated. When you have a bunch of people who are vaccinated, and that will become at some point hopefully a majority of the population, then it becomes harder to 
argue for preventing vaccinated people from hanging out with one another. I mean, there haven't very many states doing like the vaccine passport route, like in Israel, where, hey, if you're vaccinated, you can go to this event. Maybe that'll happen in some states. We'll see. But I think it's in most cases a matter of weeks, but the slowest states we were open will be four to six weeks behind the fastest ones. And so maybe kind of all comes out in the wash in the end, unless there's another surge. I do want to urge that like with people now able to get vaccinated, I do think there is a big difference between what public health officials and scientists think is safe to do in your personal life versus like publicly. I was talking to Julia Marcus, who's an epidemiologist and who's been a bit critical actually of the CDC's guidance up until now because she said that it was too conservative about what they were saying people should do, how cautious they were saying people should be. And basically like we do have these really, really effective vaccines, right? If what a vaccine is supposed to do is stop deaths and hospitalizations, our vaccines, all three of them, do that really well. Like in trials, they were 100% effective at stopping deaths and hospitalizations. That's different than that efficacy number you've seen. And so I think that we're at this moment where we're about to all get back, at least in private, to like having normal lives again. You can go see your parents once they get vaccinated. Like there's precautions we still need to take, but we're sort of approaching at least normality in in private. I think that if we're going to open up completely, there should be ways to protect service workers, people who don't have a choice, before we just like let everyone go back to restaurants or go to concerts, that sort of thing. So this is what I've been hearing from epidemiologists over the past few weeks. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I'll say I listened to Podcast 19 last week and there is a longer discussion on this. And so I would encourage all of our listeners to go check that out there. But I think that is a wrap for today's podcast. So thank you so much, Alex, Anna, and Nate for joining me today. Thank Thank you. you so much for having me. Yes, thank you. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegary Curtis is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.